Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am your host. And today's episode will be continuing on with season four. Now, for those who are new to this spot, season four is where I have gone back to the overall material that has been covered since the beginning of this podcast back in season one, and looking at it from a more macro perspective, seeing how things tie together, making some new connections, adding in new material, and doing this again from a pretty macro uh, overview. And that's what's going on now. Now, this episode in particular is continuing off of last week's talking about I guess, roughly corruption and conspiracy. Last week, I tried to be more philosophical and ideological, talking about eugenics and other uh, ideologies that are very similar and that go along with that and been paired with that. And that should have set the stage pretty well for better understanding this episode and the next. Because in this episode... I'm going to be talking a lot about specific groups and people and uh, specific examples of this corruption and conspiracy behind the scenes as far as steering the evolution of our modern society. And what I'm going to do is start off by doing a lot of quotes and excerpts. And these are extremely good ones. It's kind of a best of of all the ones that I used throughout season one and beyond. And so I, I think this will be really good. It's a lot of reading, but it is well worth it. And then after I get through that, I will get into my own material talking about some more specific things and specific groups and kind of give a chronological overview that you will better understand after I go through all the quotes. And if you are new to any of this, which some of you may be, I'm not sure with my listeners, I know a lot are not new to this. A lot of very are very familiar. But if you are new at all, if I just started off with some of these specific names and groups and conspiracies, then you would possibly uh, think that this is a little overblown. This is probably not exactly true. Where's my evidence? These types of things. And while I am not trying to make a case for all of this and give you all the evidence and all the examples and every single case and every person and every group, I'm not doing that here. That would take way too long. And that is not my point. But this these quotes and these excerpts should be enough to not only justify at least a bit of evidence behind these things, but also paint a clearer picture by looking at what people say in their own words on both sides of these issues. And then again, I'll get into some more details and more chronological look after that myself. So to begin with, I guess I should probably start off where we left off last time, and that was with the ideologies of, let's say, the elite talking about eugenics and these types of things. So I had talked about how a lot of this started, well, I guess I I started off with Malthus, but I did reference all the way back to Plato. But uh, with Malthusian theory, the next thing I talked about was Darwin and Galton talking about eugenics and Galton actually coining the term. And so what I'm going to do, I'll read some quotes about roughly eugenics and this kind of idea to give you a little background with some names that you should definitely recognize. And if you don't, remember them because they will come up again, I guarantee you. 
And so I'll read through those and then I'll get into quotes about specific movements and specific groups and all of these types of things. And it's roughly chronological and investigations. And then I will wrap up with some more generalized quotes about, uh, let's say, roughly the idea of the new world order, that kind of mentality and that kind of idea. And that's what we'll wrap up with before I get into my own part. So I'm just going to go ahead and dive in here. I think that's well worth doing. And uh, also one more thing that I might touch on this time, but definitely next time will be some of the background for the Russia-Ukraine conflict that is currently going on. Uh, So far, I've got a pretty good track record of talking about things as they happen, like Epstein. Uh, I was recording this podcast when that broke and throughout the course of that breaking and him dying and Ghislaine Maxwell and all that stuff, and made some comments throughout that did hold very true to the end, and uh, did the same when it came to COVID. I made some good calls there that did play out, and it's not because I am the smartest person in the world. It's just because when you have this information, and you can read what these people have said in their own words, and you understand their ideology, and you understand how these systems work, then some of it is pretty easy to call. It's pretty easy to see. It becomes fairly clear. So again, it's not just that I am so great because I can predict everything about the future. No, it's just that once you understand this stuff, you're going to be able to pick out some of these things on a macro level, see the trends and see where things are headed. So I'm going to try to do that in regards to Russia and Ukraine as well. There'll be possibly a touch on that today, but also in the next episode, because that'll focus more on false flags and war. And war is exactly what's going on. So Let's start off with uh, Charles Darwin. We'll start with a quote from his Descent of Man. Quote, With savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated, and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. With civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, the weak. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. There is a reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who, from a weak constitution, could formally have succumbed to smallpox. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. It is surprising how soon a want of care or care wrongly directed leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. So uh, that was... Darwin's view. And there's one thing that sounded very worth pulling out. Uh, Oh, the part where he says our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. And he's criticizing this idea. That's exactly what Plato said. And I've covered that in other episodes. Exactly that we have limited resources. And not only that, but it's not really worth it. So if someone isn't worth saving, their life does not have value to society, let them die. It's easier than killing them off in a way you don't get the pushback. But uh, yeah, don't waste your time and your resources. So again, nothing new that goes back to Plato, like just about everything. So the next part 
is from Galton. So Galton would be Darwin's cousin. You had the Darwins, the Galtons, and the Huxleys that at the time were extreme in their views of eugenics, and they kind of formed this bond where they thought they could breed, interbreed among their families and breed a better race, and that didn't end up going so well. But uh, yes, these were very influential families of the time. So uh, Galton from Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development. This is from 1883. Quote, A brief word to express the science of improving stock, which is by no means confined to questions of judicious mating, but which, especially in the case of man, takes cognizance of all influences that tend, in however remote a degree, to give to the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had. So again, it's about breeding stock and trying to make sure that the better, more suitable races or strains of blood uh, prevail over the lesser and do so uh, quicker and more speedily than they would have if left to the natural evolution of society, which, again, Darwin had just criticized about how our current society does not promote those things. And so uh, this would imply that you have to take some sort of action to make sure that this happens because otherwise, when left to its own devices, more modern societies tend to favor the weak and not the strong. And that is not a good thing, according to these people. And again, I'm going to be going off both sides of lots of things in this episode, like I usually do. Uh, Don't assume that any of this is my personally personal belief or understanding or ideology. Most of it is not, but I do try to at least give you the argument as these people would give it to you, because I think that's the best way to educate yourself and to learn. So uh, going on, the next one is from George Bernard Shaw, who interestingly enough came up in a random episode, a podcast episode I was listening to today on permaculture and regenerative agriculture, and they got to talking about the press and the media and the history of that, and it seems very unrelated because it is, but uh, this name did come up while I was listening to podcasts today in a totally different context. But uh, George Bernard Shaw said once, quote, You must all know half a dozen people, at least, who are no use in this world, who are more trouble than they are worth. Just put them there and say, sir or madam, now will you be kind enough to justify your existence? If you can't justify your existence, if you are not pulling your weight, and since you won't, if you're not producing as much as you consume, or perhaps a little more, then clearly we cannot use the organizations of our society for the purpose of keeping you alive, because your life does not benefit us, and it can't be of very much use to yourself. So he's pretty blunt about that. Again, having to take action in order to change the way society naturally propagates the race and how things evolve, including humanity. Uh, Moving on to Churchill, quote, The unnatural and increasingly rapid growth of the feeble-minded and insane classes, coupled as it is with a steady restriction among all the thrifty, energetic, and superior stocks, 
constitutes a national and race danger, which it is impossible to exaggerate. I am convinced that the multiplication of the feeble-minded, which is proceeding now at an artificial rate, unchecked by any of the old restraints of nature and actually fostered by civilized conditions, is a terrible danger to the race. I feel that the source from which the stream of madness is fed should be cut off and sealed up before another year has passed. And another one from Churchill He was specifically talking about sterilization and said it's, quote, simple surgical operation so the inferior could be permitted freely in the world without causing much inconvenience to others. Now, I did talk about these ideas of forced sterilization and eugenics in the last episode, but I felt like this really ties things together quite nicely. And I'm sure you can hear Darwin coming out of this, Darwin and Galton coming right out of Churchill's mouth. He's pretty much summing up the earlier quotes that I read. And that was not intentional. It's just the way it worked out. So I'm glad it did. But that was not my plan. I hadn't realized that. I actually have not gone through and read all of these quotes myself in the order that they are in. So I'm sure there will be things like that just because that's the way this goes. So the next quote is from John Maynard Keynes. He would be the one behind the idea of Keynesian economics. He was a big, had a big role to play in the Bretton Woods Agreement and lots of things. World War One uh, and the peace agreements. He actually bailed out on those because he pointed out how they would lead to World War II, which they did, and he was completely right about. So not a dumb person, although I would disagree with him on many things. But he did say, quote, The time has already come when each country needs a considered national policy about what size of population, whether larger or smaller, than at present or the same, is most expedient. And having settled this policy, we must take steps to carry it into operation. The time may arrive a little later when the community as a whole must pay attention to the innate quality as well as to the mere numbers of its future members. So again, he's talking about that idea, what I started with in the previous episode last week on the idea of Malthusian theory and overpopulation. And yes, again, that wasn't something that came up out of the sustainable development movement of the recent decade. This goes back quite a while, like it all does. So the next one will be Teddy Roosevelt. I know a lot of people are fans of a lot of these people, uh, mainstream people. Probably you guys are not as much of a fan of most of these, but I am trying to pick out people that are very famous, very powerful, very influential in their time. So, Teddy Roosevelt, quote, I agree with you if you mean, as I suppose you do, that society has no business to permit degenerates to reproduce their kind. It is really extraordinary that our people refuse to apply to human beings such elementary knowledge as every successful farmer is obliged to apply to his own stock breeding. Any group of farmers who permitted their best stock not to breed and let all the increase come from the worst stock would be treated as fit inmates for asylum. Yet we fail to understand that such conduct is rational compared to the conduct of a nation which permits unlimited breeding from the worst stocks, physically and morally, while it encourages or connives at the cold selfishness or the twisted sentimentality as a result of which the men and women ought to marry, and if married, have large families, remain celibates, or have no children, or only one or two." Someday we will realize that the prime duty 
the inescapable duty of the good citizen of the, of the right type is to leave his or her blood behind him in the world, and that we have no business to permit the perpetuation of citizens of the wrong type. So he's basically saying that uh, it's a breeding thing and you shouldn't let the feeble people breed, those less desirables, and instead you want the good citizens to breed. Now, this ideology overall has been refined in time. So instead of, and I'm not sure if actually this is a change, but it's at least a change from the perception you would get from these quotes and some other reading that you would probably do. But instead of the idea that you just don't let the feeble-minded breed and you only breed the elites, and that way you improve the human race as a whole, um, that would, if you got rid of morals and you got rid of ethics, that would be, it would seem, a good way to make the human race better to improve the human race. However, that's not exactly the goal of most of these people, of most of these elites and the elite groups. Their goal is to breed an elite class. Uh, again, go back to Plato. So yes, I guess this does always go back to Plato. So the idea of a, of the philosopher kings and the elites that he talked about, they should be this small class of people that did improve and was the prime example of the human race and would get better and better, more and more intelligent and more and more physically and morally good in every way. But the masses, they should basically just be left to do whatever they do. And as you have heard in these quotes, they believe that what would happen in a civilized society is they just degenerate. So the masses are heading down while the elites are heading up as far as maybe quality of a human being, intelligence, uh, physical traits, all these kinds of things. And so in doing so, you end up with masses that are a lot easier to control and deal with and are very good for, let's say, manual labor and uh, just continuing society and doing all the things that need to be done. They can be handled by the masses while the elites are better and better and better and can uh, better control people, even if those people weren't going downhill. So if they're going downhill and the elites are going uphill, then that makes it a lot easier for a small elite group of people to control mass populations. And uh, as we get later on to these quotes, I think you will see that that's exactly kind of the point. So the next one, uh, yeah, let's get into that idea. So the next one comes from Cecil Rhodes, who I've referenced many times, and this is one of the keys. So if you understand Plato's Republic, then understand Cecil Rhodes, his roundtable groups, his ideology, these things, you're going to understand 50% or more of all of this type of content. Because uh, to me, these are some of the key things that brought us to where we are today. So Cecil Rhodes. This came from his last will and testament that was read and carried out after he died. And in it, uh, I guess I'll, no, I'll, I'll tell you more about that later, I think. I think after these quotes, I'll get into those things. So let's just read this quote from Cecil Rhodes. Quote, I contend that we are the finest race in the world, and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. Just fancy those parts that are at present inhabited by the most despicable specimens of human beings. What an alteration there would be 
if they were brought under Anglo-Saxon influence. Look again at the extra employment a new country added to our dominions gives. I contend that every race added to our territory means in the future birth to some more of the English race who otherwise would not be brought into existence. Added to this, the absorption of the greater portion of the world under our rule simply means the end of all wars. At this moment, we had we not lost America, I believe we could have stopped the Russian-Turkish war by merely refusing money and supplies. Having these ideas, what scheme could we think of to forward this object? I look into history, and I read the story of the Jesuits. I see what they were able to do in a bad cause, and I might say under bad leaders. At the present day, I become a member of the Masonic Order. I see the wealth and power they possess, the influence they hold, and I think over their ceremonies, and I wonder that a large body of men can devote themselves to what at times appear the most ridiculous and absurd rites without an object and without an end. The idea, gleaming and dancing before one's eyes like a will-o'-the-wisp, at last frames itself into a plan. Why should we not form a secret society with but one objective, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule for the recovery of the United States for the making of the Anglo-Saxon race, but one empire? What a dream, but yet it is probable it is possible. So, yes, the goal, I will say it again, is to is the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule for the recovery of the United States for the making the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire. Uh, that was the goal. And, yes, this was continued on. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that later. So let's go to Carol Quigley, who years later... He basically was brought into this group, basically what evolved from the Cecil Rhodes groups, this society that he talks about setting up. It was set up, and there were different roundtable groups that met in various places around the world, and uh, Carol Quigley was brought into this group at some point years later and was uh, basically hired to write the history of this group. And he uh, wrote about it and then ended up publishing it. And there were some issues there. Some people were not very happy about that. And yeah, a lot going on in that background, but not going to get into it here. But this is who Carol Quigley is. He is the one who Bill Clinton, when he got elected president of the United States, said was his mentor in college. And Quigley was a highly respected historian before and after publishing his book, Tragedy and Hope. A History of the World in Our Times. So, let's start off here. Quote, I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have, for much of my life, been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected, both in the past and recently, to a few of its policies, but in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. So again, that's, that was part of the issue. He ended up publishing all this stuff, and uh, they didn't want to be known to that degree, and yeah, that was a disagreement. So moving on to a later part of the book, quote, 
One wintry afternoon in February 1891, three men were engaged in earnest conversation in London. From that conversation were to flow consequences of the greatest importance to the British Empire and to the world as a whole, for these men were organizing a secret society that was, for more than 50 years, to be one of the most important forces in the formation, formulation, and execution of British imperial and foreign policy. The three men who were thus engaged were already well-known in England. The leader was Cecil Rhodes, fabulously wealthy empire builder and the most important person in South, a- South Africa. The second was William T. Stead, the famous and probably also the most sensational journalist of his day. The third was Reginald Balliol Brett, later known as Lord Escher, friend and confidant of Queen Victoria, and later to be the most influential advisor of King Edward VII and King George V. The details of this important conversation will be examined later. At present, we need only to point out that the three drew up a plan of organization for their secret society and a list of original members. The plan for organization provided for an inner circle to be known as the Society of the Elect and an outer circle to be known as the Association of Helpers. Within the Society of the Elect, the real power was to be exercised by the leader, and a junta of three. The leader was to be Rhodes, and the junta was to be Stead, Brett, and Alfred Milner. In accordance with this decision, Milner was added to the society by Stead shortly after the meeting we have described. And then later on, of the Secret Society's goals and methods of operation, Quigley writes, quote, The goals which Rhodes and Milner, Milner sought and the methods by which they hoped to achieve them were so similar by 1902 that the two are almost indistinguishable. Both sought to unite the world, and above all, the English-speaking world, in a federal structure around Britain. Both felt that this goal could be best achieved by a secret band of men united to one another by devotion to the common cause and by a personal loyalty to one another. Both felt that this band should pursue its goal by secret political and economic influence behind the scenes and by the control of journalistic, educational, and propaganda agencies. This is key, folks, and this is not part of the quote. This is just me talking. This is super important. So both sought to unite the world, the English-speaking world, and that this would be achieved by having the secret band of men that share this common goal and have a loyalty to each other, and that they would pursue this by secret political and economic influence behind the scenes and by control of journalistic, educational, and propaganda agencies, which propaganda and journalistic in today's world are pretty much the same thing. But at that time, governments actually had propaganda uh, departments that were open, and things were a little different. But yes, there is... Okay, so let me... No, I'm not going to go there. So hopefully I will get into the idea of the gods of the West, because this really... uh, This is what it is. But I will hopefully get to that later. We have much more to get into. So, continuing with Quigley. Quote, This organization has been able to conceal its existence quite successfully, and many of its most influential members satisfied to possess the reality rather than the appearance of power are unknown even to close students of British history. 
This is the more surprising when we learn that one of the chief methods by which this group works has been through propaganda. It plotted the Jameson Raid of 1895. It caused the Boer War of 1899 to 1902. It set up and controls the Rhodes Trust. It created the Union of South Africa in 1906 to 1910. It established the South African periodical The State in 1908. It founded the British Empire periodical The Roundtable in 1910, and this remains the mouthpiece of the group. It has been the most powerful single influence in All Souls, Balliol, and New Colleges at Oxford for more than a generation. It has controlled the Times for more than 50 years, with the exception of the three years 1919 to 1922. It publicized the idea of and the name quote, British Commonwealth of Nations in the period 1908 to 1918. It was the chief influence in Lloyd, George, in Lloyd George's war administration in 1917 to 1919 and dominated the British delegation to the Peace Conference of 1919. It had a great deal to do with the formation and management of the League of Nations and of the system's system of mandates. It founded the Royal Institute of International Affairs in 1919 and still controls it. It was one of the chief influences on British policy toward Ireland, Palestine, and India in the period 1917 to 1945. It was a very important influence on the policy of appeasement of Germany during the years 1920 to 1940, and it controlled and still controls, to a very considerable extent, the sources and writing of the history of British imperial and foreign policy since the Boer War. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's it for Quigley. So, yes, that's that's a list that would probably ring with a little more power to someone that knows British history better than U.S. history, but we will get into more of the U.S. side coming up, because not only did they set up the Royal Institute of International Affairs in 1919, they also set up a group in the United States, and that ended up being called the Council on Foreign Relations, which, like the former, and he, he mentioned a periodical that was written that was one of the most influential um, this is true of the Council on Foreign Relations as well. They have a periodical that has been said to be the most influential magazine within U.S. politics. And yes, that is run by the Council on Foreign Relations. That was, yeah, sound founded and set up by this same group. So let's move on to something a little different, but still very related, because all these names and all these people are the same. So keep in mind, Members of this group, the Society of the Elect, these people are people like and including, let's just say including, the, these people I am naming are people that were in the group. The Rothschilds, there were Rockefellers, there was basically the top journalists and the top political influences of the day, the top economic members of the Society of the Day. These are the people that were involved here. So, Again, when you talk about J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, Rothschild, uh, Rhodes, Milner, all these people, William T. Stead, these are very big, very influential people in family and names that I will later get into, and you will hear them mentioned again. So let's get into uh, one of the groups that ended up being founded from this previous mentioned group. This would be the Federal Reserve in the United States. Quote, 
There was an occasion near the close of 1910 when I was as secretive, indeed as furtive, as any conspirator. I do not feel it is any exaggeration to speak of our secret expedition to Jekyll Island as the occasion of the actual conception of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. We were told to leave our last names behind us. We were told further that we should avoid dining together on the night of our departure. We were instructed to come at one at a time and as unobtrusively as possible to the railroad terminal on the New Jersey littoral of the Hudson, where Senator Aldrich's private car would be in readiness attached to the rear end of a train for the South. Once aboard the private car, we began to observe the taboo that had been fixed on last names. Discovery, we knew, simply must not happen, or else all our time and effort would be wasted. And this was Frank Vanderlip, 25 years after the meeting on Jekyll Island, talking about that uh, conspiracy there. And this was from Farm Boy to Financier, Saturday Evening Post, February 1935. Um, people spoke out against the Federal Reserve as it was coming out, and uh, lots of people were not very fond of it. But the Federal Reserve was, in fact, a creation that uh, basically came from this group, the Council on Foreign Relations, and back before that, the Society of the Elect. That's really where it all stems from, because when you look at the people involved, you had representatives of the Rothschilds, of the Rockefellers, of J.P. Morgan, and uh, Senator Aldrich, he ended up marrying um, one of Rockefeller's daughters. And so, yeah, they're all tied in there. And it's all the same people. And it will be all the same people when you talk about the founding of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission and all of these different groups. It's the exact same people. Or at least people very closely connected. So you might have a representative of the Rockefellers and not a Rockefeller himself. Or you might have, like, Trilateral Commission, a Rockefeller himself. So it kind of just depends, but it's basically all spawns from this original idea of the Society of the Elect. So one person, Charles A. Lindbergh, referring to the act which established the Federal Reserve, and this is from the Congressional Record of 1913, quote, This act establishes the most gigantic trust on earth. When the president signs this act, the invisible government by the money power proven to exist by the money trust investigation will be legalized. The money power overawes the legislative and executive forces of the nation and of the states. I have seen these forces exerted during the different stages of this bill. So he's calling out that there is a money power. And there was an investigation, the money trust investigation, just like many other investigations that actually find out that all this stuff is true. And then, oh, what a shock, nothing happens. So kind of like Epstein, that kind of deal, but uh, I guess much bigger. But uh, moving on to Carol Quigley, let's go back to what he said about this, at least about uh, controlling money and that type of thing. Quote, the apex of the system was to be the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, including the U.S. Federal Reserve, which were themselves private corporations. Each central bank sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, to manipulate foreign exchanges, to influence the level of economic activity in the country, and to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent economic rewards. Let's uh, get back into this rough idea. This is another one from Charles Lindbergh. 
So he's referring to the Federal Reserve Act, and this comes from the congressional record of December, I guess it says December 22nd, and the the year is actually cut off. Sorry. So it's probably the same, because the previous was December 22nd, 1913, so it's probably also December 22nd, 1913. That would make sense. So, um, But don't quote me on that, because I'm not sure, because for whatever reason, the year got cut off. But uh, let's read this quote here. Oh, no, it's actually later because, okay, no, he stated this a few years prior to the stock market crash in 1921, which ushered in the Great Depression. So, yes, it probably was in 1913 or maybe later, a few years prior to 1929. That sounds more like the 20s, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Let me just read the quote finally. Quote, The new law will create inflation whenever the trusts want inflation. It may not do so immediately, but the trusts want a period of inflation because all the stocks they they hold have gone down. Now, if the trusts can get another period of inflation, they figure they can unload the stocks on the people at high prices during the excitement and then bring on a panic and put them back down at low prices. The people may not know it immediately, but the day of reckoning is only a few years removed. From now on, depressions will be scientifically created. The new law will create inflation whenever the trusts want inflation. From now on, depressions will be scientifically created. And yes, he's calling out, uh, I would argue, what is happening today and what has happened many times since then. And yes, he's referring to the trust, capital T trusts. And uh, these are these groups behind everything, the money trusts, you can call them the bankers, you can call them the deep state in today's terms. It's all the same thing. They're generally referring to Rockefellers, JP Morgan, and some other subsidiaries. So moving on to the next one this comes from one of those investigations that i kind of, that i talk about and this one is from the house select committee to investigate certain statements of dr william wirt 73rd congress second session april 10th and 17th 1934 and according to this It seems that Dr. Wirt, while in Washington to attend a school administrator's meeting in 1933, had been invited to an elite private dinner party at the home of a high Roosevelt administration official. The dinner was attended by well-placed members of the new government, including A. Burrell, a famous inner circle brain truster. There, Wirt heard that the depression was being artificially prolonged by credit rigging until the little people and businessmen were shaken enough to agree to a plan where government must dominate business and commerce in the future. End quote. Yes, that is exactly what is happening. And talking about an inner circle brain truster, it's referring to the same group, these elites behind the scenes kind of a thing, and uh, specifically the same people. And so this uh, is... What happens? Yes, depressions are brought on, recessions are brought on deliberately, the inflation beforehand makes people's stocks and their real estate and everything worth much, much more, and then they sell a lot of it at the top there, and then they watch it crash, they squeeze the little man, small businesses, these types, and make sure that they retain most of the power and the wealth, and then they usually buy it all up at the rock bottom, and that buying is typically what stops the crash or settles it out and begins that next round of inflation 
uh, right after they bought, you know, all kinds of wealth with stocks and real estate and all these kinds of things. And the cycle happens again. So yes, the rich become much richer and more powerful, while anybody that might be an upstart gets crushed. And that's generally the idea, which fits with the idea of eugenics and the philosopher kings and the elites and the breeding programs, all of this stuff ties in together. So there was a mayor of New York City, and his name was Hyland. He made a speech in 1922 that is a very good one because it calls out people specifically. He said, quote, The real menace of our republic is the invisible government, which, like a giant octopus, sprawls its slimy legs over our cities, states, and nation. To depart from mere generalizations, let me say that at the head of this octopus are the Rockefeller Standard Oil interests and a small group of powerful banking houses generally referred to as the international bankers. The little courtier of powerful international bankers virtually run the United States government, of for their own selfish purposes. They practically control both parties, write political platforms, make cat's paws of party leaders, use the leading men of private organizations, and resort to every device to place in nomination for high public office only such candidates as will be amenable to the dictates of corrupt big business." These international bankers and Rockefeller Standard Oil interests control the majority of the newspapers and magazines in this country. They use the columns of these papers to club into submission or drive out of office public officials who refuse to do the bidding of the powerful corrupt cliques which compose the invisible government. It operates under cover of a self-created screen and seizes our executive officers, legislative bodies, schools, courts, newspapers, and every agency created for the public protection. But don't worry, people. This, this was only back then in the 20s. It, of course it's not like this today. Yes, of course it is like this today. That's, this is exactly what's still going on, just at a different level with different technology and with the evolution of the Rockefeller groups and the banking interests. But it, it really is still the Rockefeller groups and the banking interests, which all tie back again to the Society of the Elect, started by Cecil Rhodes, and that even has... Uh, origins elsewhere too but that's that really ties a lot of it together so another quote here comes from the u.s senator barry goldwater from his 1964 book no apologies quote the trilateral commission is intended to be the vehicle for multinational consolidation of the commercial and banking interests by seizing control of the political government of the united states the Trilateral Commission represents a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical. Another quote from President Harry Truman. For some time, I have been disturbed by the way the CIA has been diverted from its original assignment. It has become an operational and at times a policy-making arm of the government. Wow. You really think so? The CIA? <laughs> well, you can look into the origins of the CIA. It all stems from British intelligence. Oh, British. British Empire. Cecil Rhodes. 
Society of the Elect. Yes, it all ties together. That's where the CIA comes from. Guess what? They were the ones that set it up. And not only that, they got a lot of help later on by the Nazis. Yes, you thought the Nazis lost. Well, they lost the physical territory of Germany, but the Nazi ideology and a lot of the top Nazi officials, they continued on through projects like Project Paperclip, and others of the like. We and other countries brought them uh, purposefully into our own countries to run a lot of our very important agencies and programs like the space program and our intelligence programs and things like that. And yes, again, it all ties back. So let's move on. According to, okay, and this is just, uh, these aren't quotes, so to say, but these are notes that I have, and it should make sense about related things. And this next one actually is slightly related to the Ukraine-Russia situation right now. But according to Vincenzo Vinciguerra, and I'm guessing on pronunciation there, a far-right terrorist linked to Operation Gladio and currently serving a life sentence for the car bomb murder of three policemen. He says, quote, The reason was quite simple. They were supposed to force these people, the Italian public, to turn to the state and ask for greater security. This is the political logic that lies behind all the massacres and bombings which remain unpunished, because the state cannot convict itself or declare itself responsible for what happened. So uh, basically what was going on was that uh, NATO had carried out this operation, Operation Gladio, where they had left behind in areas of mostly Eastern Europe and all throughout Europe, these groups of basically domestic terrorists that would carry out car bombings and different things like that. And uh, what the goal was, as this um, perpetrator ended up admitting, was that They wanted to get the public of each of these nations and these regions and areas to turn to the state for greater security. Who do you turn to for greater security? Well, it's your nation state, but it's also NATO because NATO was behind all this. NATO was the overall body offering security. And so, uh, yes, there are governments that do carry out false flag operations where they kill innocent people in order to gain more power. No, that is not a conspiracy theory. That is history. Sorry, folks, but that's just the way it is. So another one related to the Ukraine and Russia as well, uh, because by the way, Putin is not a big fan of the encroachment of NATO, and I will get into the rest of that another time. So another one slightly related because it does involve the Ukraine and another thing Putin was not very fond of. Um, There was a phone conversation that was recorded and released from Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland. And it was between her and the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. And they what they're doing is discussing a coup in Ukraine. And uh, yes, they basically discuss this coup that the... The UN is heading up and they're going to overthrow the Russian-friendly leader and install someone more friendly with the West. And this was caught on take and leaked by Russia. And uh, it did hit the news at the time. I think 2014, if I remember right, it was under Obama. Uh, At least one of the coups that we were involved with was then. (laughs) There might, I think there were two actually. But, uh, But either way, This came out then, it was in the media, but what got covered in the media was that uh, 
Victoria Newland, I believe it was, I believe it was her, she says F the EU and uses the F bomb. And that is what was criticized in this recording. So it's a leaked recording where someone high up, a government official, uses the F bomb and says F the EU. And, and that's the news story. And nothing about how we carried out a coup in the Ukraine and overthrew a democratically elected leader. Uh, no, no, we're not going to talk about that. So, yes, this kind of stuff happens all the time. This is not new. But, uh, yes, the fact that we installed someone friendly with the West instead of the old person who is friendly with Russia, uh, yes, that does have something to do with some of Putin's feelings towards the UN and elsewhere. So, another uh, bit going on here. Uh, it says that the UN was not initially set up as a world government. The intent was that it would develop into one over time. John Foster Dulles, who was a Council on Foreign Relations member, he was an American delegate to the UN founding meeting and later became the Secretary of State under Eisenhower. He also, if I remember right, had a lot to do with setting up the CIA. He acknowledged this in his book, War or Peace. And his quote was thus, quote, The United Nations represents not a final stage in the development of world order, but only a primitive stage. Therefore, its primary task is to create the conditions which will make possible a more highly developed organization. So the United Nations is not the end goal. It's not a world order, so to say, but it's the setup. It's what will hopefully make favorable conditions for the new world order. World order, but obviously it would be new, and that fits with the uh, tagline that most people use. So let me shift gears a bit. These people are the same. It's all the same people. It's all the same stuff. But this is more related to education. So when we read some of the methods that were being used, education was one that was said over and over and over again, controlling the education, controlling the people. And so uh, yes, let me start off with this idea of scientific management. There was a book written by Frederick Taylor called The Principles of Scientific Management in 1911, and he later summarized his idea of this new managerial discipline in this way. It's a five-point deal here. Number one, a regimen of science, not rule of thumb. Number two, an emphasis on harmony, not the discord of competition. Uh, also remember Rockefeller's quote, competition is a sin. Number three, an insistence on cooperation, not individualism. Number four, a fixation on maximum output. Number five, the development of each man to his greatest productivity. In the past, Taylor wrote, man has been first. In the future, the system must be first. So this is kind of what was the leading educational philosophy in the early 1900s. And a lot of this was pushed by a lot of the same people that go back to the same groups. But it's it's basically treating people like machines. That That's the idea. It's getting rid of that idea of the classical education model of the trivium, critical thinking, these types of things. And instead, we want a regimen of science. We want harmony, cooperation, maximum output, great their greatest productivity. It's all about just having this one collectivist group that just does what they need to do and helps the economy produce what needs to be produced. And they just be the masses and do their thing. And that's it. 
that is kind of the goal, and that's what this creates, and many would argue that's what it has created and where we are today. So uh, that's just uh, an idea that does fit. The next bit comes from the congressional record of January 26th, 1917, and in this, Senator Chamberlain of Oregon entered these words, quote, They are moving with military precision all along the line to get control of the education of the children of the land. Senator Poindexter of Washington followed by saying, quote, The cult of Rockefeller, the cult of Carnegie, as much to be guarded against in the educational system of this country as a particular religious sect. And on the same issue, you have Senator Kenyon of Iowa, who said, quote, There are certain colleges that have sought endowments, and the agent of the Rockefeller Foundation or the General Education Board has gone out and examined the curriculum of these colleges and compelled certain changes. It seems to me one of the most dangerous things that can go on in a republic is to have an institution of this power apparently trying to shape and mold the thought of the young people of this country. Senator Works of California added, These people are attempting to get control of the whole educational work of the country. So again, this is uh, in the congressional record, all of these politicians calling this out for what was going on in the early 1900s. And as far as our modern systems are concerned, this is when they were all established. You go back to the Society of the Elect in the late 1800s, and that's when all this behind-the-scenes influence really starts to ramp up. These groups are formed, and things start to evolve from there. It's the 1900s, very early 1900s, when this really gets pushed, and this really manifests, and you have the wars that help this out that are largely tied to these same people and groups. And then as you get into the later years of, let's say, the 60s and 70s and moving into the modern time all this stuff is very, very well entrenched and established and also has been called out many, many times even by our government, but that, I guess, gets ignored. So let us move on to the next bit. Norman Dodd, a Yale graduate, intellectual, and New York City investment banker, was chosen to be the research director for the Reese Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives in 1953. The Reese Committee was named for its creator, Republican Carol Reese of Tennessee, or sorry, Representative, I believe, Carol Reese of Tennessee, and was formed to investigate the status of tax-exempt foundations. Now, as a side note, tax-exempt foundations are how a lot of these power families and the robber barons that came out of the early 1900s directed their influence on society as a whole. They set up these foundations. It was a way to funnel money. It was a way to have a lot of influence without being directly responsible and not having to uh, release information about what they were doing. And it looked good. It was good PR, all this kind of stuff. So Rockefeller Foundation, Think Modern Day, Gates Foundation, these types of groups, the Carnegie Endowment, these types of things. So uh, moving on. Dodd sent committee questionnaires to numerous foundations, and as a result of one such request, Joseph E. Johnson, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, invited Dodd to send a committee staffer to Carnegie headquarters in New York City to examine the minutes of the meetings of the foundation's trustees. These minutes had long since been stored away in a warehouse— Obviously, Johnson, who was a close friend of former Carnegie Endowment's president and Soviet spy, Alger Hiss, had no idea what was in them. The minutes revealed that in 1910, the Carnegie Endowment's trustees asked themselves this question, 
Quote, is there any way known to man more effective than war to so alter the life of an entire people? For a year, the trustees sought an effective, peaceful method to alter the life of an entire people. Ultimately, they concluded that war was the most effective way to change people. Consequently, the trustees of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace next asked themselves, quote, how do we involve the United States in a war? They answered, quote, we must control the diplomatic machinery of the United States by first gaining control of the State Department. Norman Dodd stated that the trustees' minutes reinforced what the Reese Committee had uncovered elsewhere about the Carnegie Endowment. Quote, it had already become a powerful policy-making force inside the State Department. History proved that World War I did indeed have an enormous impact on the American people. For the first time in our history, large numbers of wives and mothers had to leave their homes to work in war factories, thus effectively eroding woman's historical role as the heart of the family. So again, this goes back to destroying the family unit, which uh, also goes back to Plato. <laughs> but the sanctity of the family itself was placed in jeopardy. Life in America was so thoroughly changed that, according to Dodd's findings, quote, the trustees had the brashness to congratulate themselves on the wisdom and validity of their original decision. They sent a confidential message to President Woodrow Wilson, insisting that the war not be ended too quickly. Woodrow Wilson. We will get back to Woodrow Wilson, probably the worst president in American history. After the war, the Carnegie Endowment trustees reasoned that if they could get control of the education in the United States, they would be able to prevent a return to the way of life as it had been prior to the war. So again, if you disrupt the family unit and you have a wartime economy, you don't want to give that up. How do you keep from giving it up? You control the education system. Moving on. They recruited the Rockefeller Foundation to assist in such a monumental task. According to Dodd's Reese Committee report, quote, They divided the task in parts, giving to the Rockefeller Foundation the responsibility of altering education as it pertains to domestic subjects, but Carnegie retained the task of altering our education in foreign affairs and about international relations. During sub a subsequent personal meeting with Mr. Dodd, President Rowan Gaither of the Ford Foundation said, quote, Mr. Dodd, we invited you to come here because we thought that perhaps off the record, you would be kind enough to tell us why the Congress is interested in the operations of foundations such as ours. Gaither answered his own rhetorical question with a startling admission. Mr. Dodd, all of us here at the policy-making level of the Foundation have at one time or another served in the OSS, which was the forerunner to the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, which was uh, founded with the help of M6, what is it, MI6 or M16, whatever it is, with um, the, the British Secret Service, pretty much, or the British Intelligence Unit. And uh, yeah, moving on. Uh, so he's saying that... Ooh, let me just start over with that one. Mr. Dodd, all of us here at the policy-making level of the Foundation have at one time or another served in the OSS or the European Economic Administration, operating under directives from the White House. We operate under those same directives. The substance under which we operate is that we shall use our grant-making power to so alter life in the United States that we can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. And Dodd was stunned and said, quote, why don't you tell the American people what you just told me, and you could save the taxpayers thousands of dollars set aside for this investigation? Gaither responded, 
Quote, Mr. Dodd, we wouldn't think of doing that. In public, of course, Gaither never admitted what he said. However, on numerous publications, Norman Dodd repeated these quotes verbatim, and uh, Gaither never sued him, never challenged him. There was no challenge by the Ford Foundation, nothing. Dodd was subsequently warned that, quote, if you proceed with the investigation as you have outlined, you will be killed. Uh, The Reese Committee never completely finished its work of investigating and receiving testimony in open hearings involving the representatives of the major tax-exempt foundations. Their process was completely disrupted and finally derailed by the deliberately disruptive activity of one of its members, Congressman Wayne Hayes of Ohio. According to General Counsel for the Reese Committee, Renee A. Wormser's account in the book Foundations, Their Power and Influence, quote, Hayes was frank enough to tell us that he had been put on the committee by Mr. Rayburn, the Democratic leader of the House, as the equivalent of a watchdog. Just what he was to watch was not made clear until it became apparent that Mr. Hayes was making it his business to frustrate the investigation to the greatest extent possible. So, yes, I've referenced this stuff many times before about mainly Rockefeller Foundation and Carnegie Endowment taking control of the education system, uh, starting wars, and all of these kinds of things. Yes, it's the exact same people, the same groups. So I am going to move on. Oh, I've got a quote from Woodrow Wilson. Speaking of good old Woodrow Wilson, and we'll talk a little bit more about him and false flags and Colonel Howes and things of that nature in the next episode, I believe. But let's get back to quotes from Woodrow Wilson, because he did end up saying some things about these groups. And the reason he was in power, he was brought into power by basically the Society of the Elect through Colonel Howes, who uh, helped encourage him to go into office. They helped get him elected because his views were aligned with theirs. Again, that idea of getting men together who had similar views and ideologies and a loyalty to one another. That's what they did. They used people, these kinds of things. And Woodrow Wilson carried out a lot of their initiatives. And yeah, we'll get there hopefully. So what Woodrow Wilson would say at some point was, quote, Since I entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere, so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. And another quote. We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world. No longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of small groups of dominant men. We stand in the presence of a revolution which will come in peaceful guise. Yes, that's kind of the whole point. That's the New World Order idea. And it was uh, talked about by multiple presidents. So let's go with uh, the next best example, I believe. And this would be President John F. Kennedy. And uh, things didn't go so well for him after this. And uh, he said in a speech at one point, I actually used the the audio for the quote in uh, season two, maybe the interim season. I don't remember. At some point, one of my intros to the podcast had some Uh, voices and some audio speeches and uh, one of the lines from this is in there. 
So if you have, if you remember those episodes, you might be able to call out which line that was. So this is from President Kennedy. Quote, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our way of life is under attack. Those who make themselves our enemy are advancing around the globe. No war ever posed a greater threat to our security. If you are awaiting a finding of clear and present danger, then I can only say that the danger has never been more clear and its presence has never been more imminent. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. Think Operation Gladio. It is a system which has constricted conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned. No rumor is printed. No secret is revealed. So yes, you should recognize a lot of these ideas. There's a small group of people behind the scenes, and they're using these various uh, aspects, whether it be the media, politics, economic, uh, educational, and they are the ones truly steering things behind the scenes, using more covert means, and they are the ones with the true power, uh, yeah, that's kind of what we've been talking about this whole time. And yes, President Kennedy also mentioned it. Now, I will not glorify President Kennedy, just like I won't glorify Putin or anybody else that I um, talk about when I try to give both sides of a thing. But uh, I will point out that he did call that just like I am not a fan of Woodrow Wilson at all. But I will read his quotes because they make sense here. So let's uh, move from a president to a president's wife, Edith Roosevelt. And she wrote in, or I guess the title would be Elite Clicks Hold Power in U.S. This was in the Indianapolis News in 1961. I have two quotes from this. So the first is, quote, The word establishment is a general term for the power elite in international finance, business, the professions, and government, largely from the Northeast, who wield most of the power regardless of who is in the White House. Most people are unaware of the existence of this legitimate mafia, yet the power of the establishment makes itself felt from the professors who seek a foundation grant to the candidate for a cabinet post or a state department job. It affects the nation's policies in almost every area. Second quote, what is the establishment's viewpoint? Through the Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy administrations, its ideology is consistent, that the best way to fight communism is by a one-world socialist state governed by, quote, experts like themselves. The result has been policies which favor the growth of the superstate, gradual surrender of the United States' sovereignty to the United Nations, and a steady retreat in the face of communist aggression. 
So yes, calling out some of these ideas, a one world order, which would be the new world order, the United Nations as a tool to steer us towards this one world government. Uh, Yeah, friendly with the communist uh, movement and retreating, a steady retreat in the face of the communist aggression. And there's a lot more to unpack there, but I will move on. So I've got the quote from Highland again, and I will not read that again. Let's move to Justice Felix Frankfurter uh, from the U.S. Supreme Court. Quote, the real rulers in Washington are invisible and exercise their power from behind the scenes. Next one is General Douglas MacArthur. Quote, I am concerned for the security of our great nation, not so much because of any threat from without, but because of the insidious forces working from within. Then let's go with, let's go old school, go with George Washington from 1798. We're talking about the influence of secret societies and things of this nature. Um, George Washington, most people think he does have some merit to speak on just about anything related to U.S. history. So he, uh, let's see, let's just read the quote. Quote, it is not my intention to doubt that the doctrine of the Illuminati and the principles of Jacobinism had not spread in the United States. On the contrary, no one is more satisfied of this fact than I am. So, yes, Illuminati? <laughs> yeah, yeah, General Washington talked about that too. So, yeah, it's been going on for quite a while. President Franklin Roosevelt, let's move away from his wife and read a quote from him himself. In 1933, he said, quote, The real truth of the matter is, as you and I know, that a financial element in the larger centers has owned the government since the days of Andrew Jackson. Yes, this is the international bankers. This is the money click. This is uh, the society of the elect. This this is the same people. And uh, early 1900s, you could say J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller are probably the top dogs here, but uh, it does expand from there. So... Let's move on to Dwight Eisenhower. This is one that some people will recognize, and I believe I had some audio clips of this as well in my intro for whatever season it was that I did audio clips for the intro. And let's start at the beginning here. Quote, Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new to the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every statehouse, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development. Yet, we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications." Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. 
So there's actually another quote that I guess I didn't include there where he talks about uh, the science... Um, the the scientific elite that also are a danger in addition to the military industrial complex and i believe it comes from that same speech but apparently i did not include there but uh yes that is very relevant for today's world and you go back to edith roosevelt who talked about uh the experts that are the ones that should run things we talk about the ages of man shifting into the age of science all about the experts running things not the politicians we see that at the end of this age of economics, let's say the 1900s, that the experts are the ones truly starting to run things behind the scenes, the bankers, the uh, robber barons, these types, these groups using covert methods. Yes, it all ties together. So let's go to, uh, I don't know what this is, so I will just read it and we'll find out. In June 2002, the former royal butler, Paul Burrell, revealed to the Daily Mirror in London that Queen Elizabeth II told him, quote, There are powers at work in this country about which we have no knowledge. Hmm. Well, British royal family has a lot of influence as well, and there's large rabbit holes to go down there. But uh, moving on, the open conspiracy. Okay, so this is H.G. Wells. And he wrote a book called The Open Conspiracy. H.G. Wells was a big eugenicist and was also tied to the Society of the Elect and the Roundtable Groups and such. So he has um, a lot of connections here. The Fabian Socialists, all of this. uh, Yes, H.G. Wells. So, quote, The Open Conspiracy as consisting of a great multitude and variety of overlapping groups, but now all organized for collective political, social, and educational as well as propagandistic action. They will recognize each other much more clearly than they did at first, and they will have acquired a common name. The character of the Open Conspiracy will now be plainly displayed. It will have become a great world movement, as widespread and evident as socialism and communism. It will largely have taken the place of these movements. It will be more. It will be a world religion. This large, loose, assimilatory mass of groups and societies will be definitely and obviously attempting to swallow up the entire population of the world and become the new human community. This should sound really familiar to you guys, because... Uh, Talking about the secular religions, uh, statism, wokeism, and scientism, and what's coming up in the age of science, uh, but a secular religion of scientism, and it's this movement, this technocracy movement that is going beyond socialism and communism and taking them over, and uh, yeah, this all, of course, ties in. So, continuing on, quote, The establishment of the economic world state by the deliberate invitation, explicit discussion, and cooperation of the men most interested in economic organization, men chosen by their work, called to it by a natural disposition and aptitude for it, fully aware of its importance and working with the support of an increasing general understanding. It is not a project to overthrow existing governments by insurrectionary attacks, but to supersede them by disregard. Again, the idea of technocracy here, the corruption of the age of economics and the corporate world starting to run the government, the bankers running the government, who's really in charge? It's the experts. Now that becomes more overt as we shift into a technocratic age. Quote, I'll go back to the quote. 
it does not want to destroy them or alter their forms, but to make them negligible by replacing their functions. It will respect them as far as it must. What is useful of them, it will use. What is useless, it will efface by its stronger reality. It will join issue only with what is plainly antagonistic and actively troublesome. The open conspiracy will appear first, I believe, as a conscious organization of intelligent, and in some cases wealthy, men, as a movement having distinct social and political aims, confessedly ignoring most of the existing apparatus of political control, or using it only as an incidental implement in the stages, a mere movement of a number of people in a certain direction, who will presently discover, with a sort of surprise, the common object toward which they are all moving." In all sorts of ways, they will be influencing and controlling the ostensible government. Yes, this is what we're talking about with the 1900s and the Harbor Barons, Society of the Elect, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Rockefellers, all of these things. This is what they are doing. This is it. This is what Wells calls the open conspiracy. And again, going back to like season two of this podcast, where I talked about the parallels with the Reformation, it's not that when the Reformation happened, nation states took over and they just destroyed the church and the church no longer existed. No, the church was still there and it was still there and all the power that it had. It's just that its power had been greatly diminished. It had been broken up even more than it was, and it had been corrupted already, so that wasn't too hard to bring people away from. And the nation-state, the lords, the nobles, uh, that crowd, the merchant class was tied in with that. They took that power that they actually had behind the scenes already. So uh, the Medicis, you could look at the Borgias and uh, groups and families like this who, they, they had popes, like they actually had family members that became popes and ran the church. So it's not like they didn't have an influence already, but they were just using the church as it was uh, useful. And when it wasn't useful, they discarded it right away. But again, the church still existed after that. Just like, I would argue today, the nation-state still exists after we've shifted into this technocratic age. It's not like nation-states go away. It's not like there are no politicians anymore. But the real power will be in the hands of the technocracy. That, that's the point. And that's where we are headed right now. The technocracy, let's say the, uh, let's say big tech and the corporate realm, the, the evolution of the society of the elect where you have the international bankers and, uh, the robber barons, these, uh, the, I guess the, the lingering effects and the later people of that movement, they're the ones that truly have power today. And yes, they largely control the government, just like a lot of people were um, saying that I quoted in this episode from the 1920s. We're already saying all this. Yes, this is still going on today, and this will happen. It will just become more overt and things will change. There'll be new centers of power that will start to become more and more dominant. Again, the United Nations is a tool, a step towards this thing. We are headed towards this thing, this new world order, this technocracy. And as we shift into the age of science, this will become a reality, whereas it wasn't able to before. And the current system has become corrupt enough that it won't be hard for people to turn to a new system. And that current system, the nation state today, will lose a lot of its power and influence, but it will still exist. So I guess that's how I see things here. So let me just read uh, three more quotes here. We've got two from Zbigniew Brzezinski, 
And one comes from the Gorbachev Summit in 1995. We'll do that first. Quote, We cannot leap into a world government in one quick step. In brief, the precondition for eventual globalization, genuine globalization, is progressive regionalization, because thereby we move toward larger, more stable, more cooperative units. And then in his book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, which a lot of people would say that's how Rockefeller became aware of him and brought him on because his ideologies aligned and they could be men with loyalties and ideologies that steer things behind the scenes. Uh, Yes, we read about that too. So in his book, Between Two Ages, he says, quote, The technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite, unrestrained by traditional values. Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities." So that's what he's calling for the future, and that will be used by this elite that do dominate this new society, the technotronic society, he calls it, and that would be the technocratic society that I talk about. And yes, that's where we are or are about to be. And he says that the precondition for the eventual globalization is progressive regionalization. So there's two parts to that. Number one... Well, I guess the point that he's making here is just one part, and that would be that you have things like NATO, the EU, the League of Nations, these types of things that uh, bring together countries and their supranational organizations. So think the World Bank, the IMF, uh, something like the World Economic Forum, these types of groups, and they are steering us towards this technocracy towards this new world order towards this something else they aren't the something else in and of themselves but they are taking us to the something else Uh, the other part okay so i guess the other part will be talked about in this next quote and this is from joseph stalin quote Divide the world into regional groups as a transitional stage to world government. Populations will more readily abandon their national loyalty to a vague regional loyalty than they will for a world authority. Later, the regions can be brought together all the way into a single world dictatorship. So it's, yes, I guess it's still that same idea that you bring... Uh, nations, states, and groups, and peoples into larger and larger groups and larger and larger loyalty spheres, and that will then progress into basically a one-world society. You go to the idea of the society of the elect, and that is a society ran by the West, uh, specifically Britain and America. And yeah, I guess I'm just going to get into snow. Okay, never mind. I just saw how long this episode is currently, and I am not going to do any more. So hold that thought. I've got a lot of great stuff to get into next time, and I think I'll talk about the gods of the West and talk about uh, the role of the UK and America and how that has flowed through history. We'll talk about the things that I said I was going to talk about at the end of this episode, but I obviously do not have time for. So that will be some specifics, a chronological look on some of these names and groups, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers. 
We'll talk about some of the uh, influential things that happened in Cecil Rhodes and the modern groups and their modern forms, all of these kinds of things. And I'll reference different operations and investigations and things of this nature. So we will get into that next time. I am sorry we can't get into it this time, but I really don't want to do multiple hour-long episodes again. If you want multiple hour-long episodes on these types of topics, go back to season one. I will link it in the show notes. I did a whole series on corruption and conspiracy. And if I remember right, those are like two hour long podcasts. I think one was even three hours. And yes, I do a lot of the quotes that I read today were pulled from that series, as well as many other ones that I have pulled from throughout the uh, life of this podcast. But you will hear some of those again, but I do go into greater detail and get into a lot more stuff, very long form. So if you're interested in that, go back and listen to those earlier episodes that go more detailed into those areas. Again, I'm staying a little more macro and trying to tie everything together. So I use the phrase, yes, it all ties together over and over and over again, uh, because it does. And because that's the whole point of season four is to look at these step back, look at it from a macro lens, a big overview and see how it all connects together and see where we fit in this tapestry. And that's what I'm doing. So I will end this episode here and say thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you are willing and able to support this podcast by donating money, I would greatly appreciate that as well. That is how I pay for the hosting. That's how I pay for any new equipment. That's how I pay for books for research and uh, Amazon Audible subscription for books for research, all that kind of stuff. I pay for directly from the support of listeners like you. So if you are willing to support this show, I am definitely willing and interested to put it out there for free to anybody that wants it. And if you want to join me in this endeavor, please do so. I've got a link in the show notes for the Patreon page. There's also a subscribe star page for those that are not fans of Patreon. Many reasons for that. And uh, that is it. You can also find me on Twitter at FoundationsPC. I've got a website for this podcast where you can stream this podcast, find lists of resources, an outline for the podcast as a whole, various things, a little bit about me. Uh, I've got a list of appearances I've made on other shows. I'm actually doing some more appearances on other shows coming up. So I should have an interview that will be coming up. Actually, I have no time frame for that, but I have done one interview at least and have two or three others scheduled. So as those come out, on the various other podcasts they will come out on. I will refer you to those if you are interested. With that, I will end this episode by saying thank you very much for all of your support. Thank you for anybody who has left a rating or a review for the podcast. Extremely helpful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye.